Well, good morning, church. It is so good to see all of you. I, I, you know I'd like to tell you that I love and appreciate you, but sometimes I like to give some specific things that I love and appreciate about this con- congregation. And one of the things I just want to reiterate what Mark said in the, in the welcome this morning is the Road Family Conference that we're having this coming Saturday. Our Road Family Ministry team puts on, I think, one of the best conferences that I've ever seen. Our This team that, that puts this together and the way that it's organized and the people that they have come in and be part of that conference is absolutely a blessing to my family every year. And I know it's a blessing to every family that participates in it. So I just want to say, if you haven't already signed up to help or to be here, regardless of whether you're a parent yet or your kids are already grown or whatever stage of life you're in, either be here as a participant or be here as a helper. We, we need you and you will be blessed by being here. So there's a table in the foyer. I just want to give another plug uh, to be part of the conference this coming weekend because all of us are part of our own families and then we're also a part of this family. And family is so much a part of everything that we do. And, and thinking about family for just a second, one of the things that my family tries to be really intentional about, or at least I try to be really intentional with my family. My kids get really tired of hearing me say and asking questions about what sort of story are you telling yourself? They get tired of me asking that question. What sort of story are you telling yourself? And we're always asking in our family, are you telling yourself a true story? Are you telling yourself a good story? Every time words like never and always get used, I, I say, whoa, whoa, hold on, time out. And then sometimes when I get on to the boys about something, then they turn it around on me, and I find myself saying never and always, and they'll say, oh, Dad, what kind of story are you telling yourself? It's an important question, isn't it? What sort of story are you telling yourself? What sort of story are you telling yourself about yourself? What sort of story are you telling yourself about others? What, what sort of story are you telling yourself about life? When you say things like, this always happens, or I never, or you never, or you always, and you're telling yourself, this is the sort of story that we're a part of. And the reason I'm so passionate about that question and about that idea is that I have told myself some pretty untrue and destructive stories about myself, about other people, about life, and we are the stories that we live out. And we're always, we're constantly telling ourselves stories, aren't we? We're constantly being part of some sort of narrative. In some of the stories that we tell ourselves, we're the victim. In some of the stories that we tell ourselves, we're the victor. In some of the stories that we're telling ourselves, we're even the villain. And so we have to stop and asking our, ask ourselves, what, what sort of stories are we telling ourselves? Most of the time we tell ourselves stories in order for us to cope with things, in order for us to get through hard times, or, or maybe we're telling ourselves stories in, in order to make sense of things, in order to take our experiences, to take our life to take the people that are around us and sort of make sense of the world around us, we tell ourselves 
stories. This is always the way things are, or people always do this, or I never do that, or I always do this other thing. In order to make sense and to cope with things, we tell ourselves stories. But church, I want, I want us to acknowledge something. Just, just because a story helps, or just because a story makes sense, doesn't mean it's true. Let me say it one more time. Just because a story helps, or just because a story makes sense, doesn't mean it's true. You can tell yourself a story that makes sense of your environment, it makes sense of your experiences, it makes sense of your life, but it doesn't mean it's true. You can tell yourself a story in order to help you cope with life situation, but just because you tell yourself that story and just because it makes sense in your mind and just because it helps you get through that circumstance doesn't necessarily mean that it's true. And one of the reasons we come here, one of the benefits of being part of this assembly every week is to remind ourselves of the true story. Because this true story, this true story about Jesus, the spirit story, it not only helps and makes sense, but it undermines all of these other competing narratives that are going on in the world. This is the story that's true. This is the story that blesses. This is the story that helps. This is the story that makes sense of everything. And this is the story that undermines all of the other competing narratives that we're telling ourselves or that the world is telling us, that our family told us, that we have accepted as true. This is the true good news story, the story that begins in Eden. And as we said last week, as we said last week, that what was lost in Eden can be found in Jesus, right? That's the story that we're a part of. That's the story that we're reminding ourselves of. That's the story that we're proclaiming is that what was lost in Eden, life and abundance and ministry and the presence of God, that what was lost in Eden can be found in Jesus, and one of the other things that I want us to recognize this month as we're talking about this Eden story, the story of Genesis 2 and 3, is that this story about Eden is intended to instruct us, not just inform us. Eden is intended to instruct us, not just inform us. This story is intended to shape the way we think about everything. This story is intended to shape the way and introduce the story that we're a part of so that it shapes and instructs and teaches us about life, about humanity. And today we're specifically going to talk about things like gender and sexuality and marriage and family. This story that begins in Eden and ends in the New Jerusalem, this story that we're a part of, this story that we're proclaiming, it has implications for every single area of our life. And it's intended not just to inform us, but to instruct us, to shape us, to mold us. And again, we're asking questions about these important topics, aren't we? gender and sexuality and marriage and family. And this story, this story is the anchor, is the root to all of that. 
In fact, we're going to look at and think about how Jesus and the apostles, every time they spoke about those important topics, they rooted their teaching in the story of the Garden of Eden. Every time they taught about those important topics, they rooted their teaching, their instruction in the story of the Garden of Eden. So that should tell us that our thinking, our thinking should be shaped by this story. So if you have your Bible, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 18. Such a beautiful story. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now, if we were to begin in Genesis 1-1 and read all the way to this point in the story, this is the first time that something is not good, right? Everything else has been good. Everything else has been very good. And that itself ought to tell us something, shouldn't it? That should shape us, that should instruct us, that should teach us that God's creation is what, church? Good. God's creation is good. God's creation is good. The dirt is good, and the trees are good, and the grass is good, and the water is good, and the animals are good. Good. This is the way God intended for things to be. This is God's creation, and God looks at all of his creation, and he says it's good. And the first thing that God says is not good is that man should be what? Alone. Now that, again, should tell us something, shouldn't it? That the, the first thing that is not good is aloneness, being alone alone. And that should tell us something not just about humanity, but something about God. That God is a God of relationships. God is a God of togetherness. God is a God of partnerships. God created human beings, and when the human, the Adam, was alone, he says, that's not good. And so God wants to make him a, our translation says, a helper fit for him. And we probably know that he's going to make Eve. So let's think about this phrase, a helper, a helper, a helper. What does that mean? Well, the Hebrew word is azer, azer. Now, when we think about a helper, we might think, we might think about something like a a sidekick or or like an assistant or something. But the, the Hebrew word azer doesn't have any of those sort of connotations. In fact, the word azer, this word for helper is an incredibly powerful and important word. Most of the time, or many of the times that it's used in the Old Testament, it was used about God. That God is the azer of Israel. That when Israel is in in a hardship, when Israel can't do something for herself, when, when Israel is at war, when Israel is attacked, when Israel is hurting, God comes along as their azer to lift them up, to rescue them, to save them. An azer is someone who does for you what you can't do for yourself. In fact, there's a word that you might be familiar with. We sing a song that says, here I raise my Ebenezer. And the end of that word is azer, E-Z-E-R. And and that 
idea is that when God rescued Israel, they, they built a stone of remembrance, a stone, a monument to say, God is our azer. God is our helper. God is our rescuer. God has done for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. So God looks at the Adam, at humanity, at the man, and he says it's not good for man to be alone, so I will make him an azer, a helper, someone to help him, someone to be with him, to to do for him what he can't do for himself. And then the other part of that phrase, a helper fit for him, the the word there is konegdo, compound word konegdo, and, and, and we think about fit. It's a really good word, fit. Or, or might say in your, in your margin or at the bottom of your page, corresponding to. It's a word that, it, it doesn't mean that, that the other will be exactly the same. And it doesn't mean that they will be totally different. It, it means that they will be corresponding to, like a, a mirror image. That's a good metaphor, isn't it? A mirror image. Because when you you look at an image in the mirror, it's the opposite in some ways, right? Some things are are turned around, and it's the inverse, and other things are exactly the same. They're corresponding to, or I read this week a a great metaphor of your right and your left hands, right? They're, They're different, but yet they are the same. They are corresponding to one another. They fit together. And God says, I will make for man an azer connecto, a helper that corresponds to him, a helper that fits with him, a helper that is the mirror image of him. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? Not somebody that's totally different than him and not somebody that's exactly the same as him, but a a helper, a, a rescuer, someone to do for him what he can't do for himself that corresponds to him, that fits together with him, somebody who is the mirror image of him. He says in verse 19, Now, Out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. I love that. And whatever the man called every living creature, every nefesh, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to the beasts of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a azer konegdo, a helper fit for him. Now, first of all, look at the authority that God entrusted to humanity. The authority that God entrusted to man. That he would bring all of these animals that he created. He brought them forth out of the ground. These living creatures, these nefesh, these living animals, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever he called them, that was their name. And so God entrusts this authority, this delegated authority to Adam. But it says none of these creatures could be Adam's azer connecto. Right? None of these could be the, the helper fit for him. Why? 
because they didn't correspond to him. They didn't fit with him. They weren't the mirror image of him. They couldn't be what Adam needed because none of them were his mirror image. None of them corresponded to him. None of them fit with him. They weren't like him. Verse 21, so the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Now, first of all, the word that we translate rib, it doesn't, it's not always translated as rib. In fact, I don't know that it's translated as rib any other time. It's usually translated as the side. Like sometimes it's for the side of a house or the side of a building, which makes sense, of course, right? Because he took it from his side or he took one of his sides. And so we've said, well, the the rib is right there on the side. So maybe that's what he took from him. But I think it's this beautiful picture, isn't it? That God took one side of man, of humanity, and made woman. And so woman is one side of humanity, and men are one side of humanity. This helper fit for him, this corresponding person, this mirror image of one another. And again, just like it said with all of the animals all of those living creatures, God again brings this this new living creature, this new nephesh, this new soul, and brings this one to the man. We would assume to do what? What happened before, right? What happened when all of the animals were brought to Adam is he named them. And so God is bringing this woman to the man to see what he will name to see what he will call her. And it says in verse 23, then the man said this, I love this phrase, at last, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Now again, Adam names her, just as he had named all of the other animals, God continued to delegate that authority to Adam to name this new creature. But notice he doesn't pick a name that is totally dissimilar to his own. In fact, in Hebrew and in English, it's easy to see the correlation, isn't it? Woman and man. In, in Hebrew, it's isha, woman, isha, and man, ish. Ish and Isha, again, corresponding to, fitting together with, a mirror image of one another. Not exactly the same. Not exactly the same. But not totally different either. Corresponding to one another, like a mirror image of one another. And so he doesn't call her something that is totally dissimilar from himself. He says, she shall be called Isha. She shall be called woman because she was taken from man, from Ish. Ish and Isha, man and woman, together, corresponding to one another, fitting together with one another, mirror images of one another, partners together to do what God had called them to do. At last, at last, Adam had his Azer Konegdo, his helper that 
corresponded to him, that fit with him, that could be his other half to accomplish together what he couldn't accomplish alone. Now, here's the part I really want us to focus on. So, so we've been told this, this narrative about what's happened, and then, and then we have this word from the narrator. The narrator chimes in in verse 24 and says, therefore, therefore, because this is the way God ordered things, because this is what has happened, because this is the story we're a part of, the narrator chimes in and says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother. We, in the story, we haven't had fathers and mothers yet, have we? But the narrator says, this should shape the way we think about family and gender and sexuality, and marriage. He says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Again, the narrator helps us to understand that this story isn't just to inform us. Oh, that's real nice. Oh, that's what happened, huh? That's where it all started, huh? Oh, okay, okay, got it. It's not just to inform us. It's to instruct us. It's to shape us. It's to teach us. The narrator says, therefore... Because this is how God has ordered things. Because this is what God has done. There is a a commandment that's implied in there. God is implying what we ought to do and how we ought to think about these things. And if this really is the story by which the world is ordered, if this really is the truth, then we have to allow it to shape our thinking on these things, don't we? I want us to see, as we, I don't normally jump out of our our base text, but I want us to see, as we turn to the New Testament, how Jesus and his apostles anchored their teaching in the story of the Garden of Eden. How when Jesus and his apostles taught about these things, they anchored their teaching, their instruction, in the Garden of Eden. Because Eden isn't just meant to inform us. It's meant to instruct us. And so, number one, when Jesus taught about marriage and divorce, Matthew chapter 19, where did he anchor his teaching? The, the, the scribes and the Pharisees and the rabbis of Jesus' day wanted to find sort of loopholes for marriage and divorce. And they wanted to find out, you know, where's the loophole? What's the cause? When can I get rid of my wife and get a new wife? When when can I do that, Jesus? What do you say on these things? And Jesus doesn't go to Deuteronomy. He doesn't go to Leviticus. He goes to Genesis 2. And he says, "This, this this is the foundational story of who we are and what we're supposed to do. The Pharisees came to Jesus and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And he answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. The the people of Jesus' day, like the people of many days and many eras and many generations, began to accept and adopt and be conformed to a different narrative about marriage and divorce, about family. 
And they began to tell themselves a story that said, well, I'm a big, powerful husband, and I could do pretty much whatever I want, and if my wife doesn't make me happy, I'll get rid of that wife and I'll get a new wife. And they were trying to find loopholes in the law in order to justify those sorts of decisions. And they take this to Jesus, and Jesus says, have you not read? Have you not read Genesis 2? Have you not read the story of how God created them, male and female, and how when a husband and wife are married to one another, they become one flesh. They're united. And what God unites, what God joins together, people should not separate. Jesus says this has to shape our thinking about marriage. This has to shape our thinking about unity. This has to shape our thinking about what happens when two people join themselves together. Paul picks up on the same theme when he talks about sexual immorality. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, starting at verse 15. He says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Your, your bodies are members of Christ. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two shall become one flesh. Jesus says because of, or Paul says rather, because of the unity that you have with Jesus, who you unite yourself with really matters. Your body really matters. And who you unite yourself really matters. Again, this undermined and contradicted the narrative that was being accepted in the Greco-Roman world, didn't it? And it undermines the narrative, the story that's being perpetrated by us in our world. And Paul takes them all the way back to this Garden of Eden story and says, when God created them, male and female, and then he brought them together and joined them together, they became one flesh. Number three, Paul even uses this theme to talk about distinct gender roles. Church, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 through 13, he talks about how it's the, the role of men to teach and have authority in the church, and he uses as his anchor for that, for Adam was formed first and then Eve. And, and In their mind, especially in Paul's mind, in the Spirit's mind, the the firstborn had that responsibility to lead and teach. And he says, because Adam is the firstborn, because Adam was formed first and then Eve, this is the way it should be in the church. And again, over and over and over again, throughout the Bible, we're reminded that the story of the Garden of Eden is not just to inform us, but to instruct us to shape us, to say this is the way God ordered the world. Number four, love and unity in marriage. Paul compares the way that husbands and wives are joined together into one body with the way that the church is joined together with Jesus. And he says, in the same way that Christ loved the church, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. Where does Paul get that idea that a husband should treat his wife as his own flesh, as his own body? Genesis 2, 24, right? He gets it from the text. 
Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Let each of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This loving and cherishing and nourishing as if we're one body in marriage, this love and unity of marriage, what anchors that? It's the story that we're a part of. It's this true story about how God formed humanity, where we came from, and what God intends for us. So here's the question that we have to wrestle with, that you have to wrestle with, that I have to wrestle with, that we all have to wrestle with, is what stories are shaping your thoughts on these things? What stories are shaping your thoughts on these things? On these things and on everything, what stories are shaping your thoughts? And we might think about how some like modern American stories and narratives clash with this story of Scripture. Stories that say there there really is no distinction between genders or that gender is just a social construct. We might think about how this idea about that we've been wrestling with for decades now about how intimacy can be had without any sort of commitment or consequence, how it can be had just casually, how those stories are contradicted by the story that begins in Eden and ends in the New Jerusalem. But it's not, it's not just modern stories that are in conflict with this story. It's also traditional stories. Traditional stories about stereotypes about masculinity and femininity. What does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a woman? Traditional stories about marriage where women are treated as lesser than and not as an azer conegdo, a helper that corresponds to and fits with and is the mirror image of and works together with and is a blessing to her husband. A story that God gives us about how a husband should love and cherish and nourish his wife the way that Jesus does the church as being one flesh. So just like last week, we had this choice to make. And we're presented every week with this choice between the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life and how choosing Jesus and trusting Jesus is choosing the tree of life. We could say this way, we can either be conformed to our own stories or transformed by the Spirit's story. That's the choice we have, isn't it? To be conformed by our own stories, by the stories that we're telling ourselves, the stories that our families have told us, the stories that our culture is telling us, the stories that our culture used to tell us, or new stories that our culture is coming up with. There's all sorts of narratives and all sorts of stories. And then there is the story that the Spirit is giving us, the story that begins in Eden and how what was lost in Eden, life and abundance and ministry and the presence of God can be found in Jesus. But it It can't be just a story that informs us. It has to be a story that instructs us. A story that we step into. That says, this this has to shape. Above my own feelings, above my own traditions, 
above the, the pullings and the pleadings of the world. This has to shape what I, what I think about humanity, what I think about masculinity, what I think about femininity, what I think about family, what I think about life and how I live out my life. This is the story that we're stepping into when we're baptized into Jesus, isn't it? A story of transformation. And we're thankful that it's a story of transformation because we've all gotten the story wrong. And we've all violated the story. We've all contradicted the story. We've all gone away from the story. And Jesus wants to bring us back into the story. He wants to graft us back into the family tree. He wants us to be part of what began in Eden. He wants us to be part of God's family. And we've all gone astray. And we need the forgiveness and the redirection and the transformation that we can only find in Jesus and through the Spirit, it begins at baptism. And then every day after that, we have to remind ourselves that I can either be conformed to my own stories or transformed by the Spirit story. The choice is ours. So let's make that decision. Maybe, maybe you need help and encouragement from your church family. Maybe you're ready to put Jesus on in baptism. You can visit with our elders after service in the prayer room, or you can come forward now as together we stand and sing this song.